0: Welcome to the very first Arts Hubbub, your monthly look inside Australian arts and artists. I'm your host, George Dunford. Well, it all starts with ideas. No matter what medium you're creating in, art needs that first burst of inspiration. But where do ideas come from and how can you get more of them? We'll be having a natter with master novelist Christos Chalkas about how he creates. I'll be unpacking the minds of artists as we look at how you come up with ideas. And finally, I'll be letting you know what's ahead in events across the literary, visual and performing arts for the next month. First up, our performing arts editor Richard Watts chatted with Christos Choukas about writing and working across mediums and how he balances his personal and creative life. You probably know Christos through his novels, like his first book, Loaded, which he made into the successful film Head On, or his breakthrough book, The Slap, but he's also a playwright, essayist, screenwriter and film critic. His latest book, Damascus, might seem like a departure, but as Richard discovered, the book is still very close to home. We meet Christos in his Thornbury studio, surrounded by objects that inform and enrich his work
1: that map is i found it in an op shop down the street here in thornbury and i remember it was the same map we had in, at primary school so.
0: richard and christos chat about the importance of place and practice in creating ideas it's
1: a really nice reminder of being a young kid actually when i when i look at that map <laughs> so you've got
2: old book covers here you've got images that speak to you that speak about you, about your history, about your writing, about your friends and family. How important is it to have a space like this to write in? Because when you were a younger writer, you didn't have a studio to call your own.
1: No, look, I, um, I did my first writing in the kitchen of a rented house, you know, or I would go into the backyard. I discovered the library really early on, and I think public libraries are one of those spaces that um, neoliberalism hasn't. <laughs> Managed to erase. I think it is important to have a space that is away from home. I have been very fortunate to have a partner in Wayne who has always supported what I do in terms of writing. But I, there was a point quite a while back now, Richard, where I realised what was happening is Wayne would come home from work and I'd be at the computer. And I was still in work mode and I just didn't like who I was becoming because sometimes he would just, you know, he'd just call through the door, how are you? And I'd, I'd be grumpy because, you know, suddenly my, my um, thought process had been disturbed. And we sat down and talked and I just said, look, I think I need to rent a, a, a space. And originally I, uh, the first space I had was a wonderful shared open plan office space in Brunswick and I loved I loved that. I was I was there for, for for quite a few years with some really good people. But then this this place came up and it's a half an hour walk, maybe a little bit less from home. So the beginning of my day is actually walking to work and the end of the day is is walking back home. And I like that closure, you know, that that opening and closing of the working day. That doesn't mean I'm, you know. Sometimes I'm I'm working at, at home. You know, you get an idea at three o'clock in the morning, you jump out of bed and you, you you work it. But I do think treating what we do as work is important for your sense of yourself as a writer, and also to make space for it in terms of the rest of your life as well. To go, actually, I don't want my work place to be my house. I want that to be our home. It blurs, of course it does. I was lucky enough to read Virginia Woolf's A Room on One's Own in late high school. You know, it's one of those masterful essays that, that stays with you. And it's very much about how important it is for women to have a space. But I actually think there is insight in that essay that applies to everyone who's a writer you're
2: a writer of fiction. You're also a writer of theatre. You're a writer of non-fiction.
1: You're a writer of screenplays as well. I'm also a film critic. Why that's important is that that's one of the areas of the work I do that is so enjoyable because I love cinema. And to be able to try and communicate that love of cinema to readers. And also, you know, when you love something, you're Often going to be disappointed <laughs> to try and communicate why I'm disappointed in, in some of the films that I watch. That's been a really important part of my writing life. And that's actually how I started. The first piece of writing I ever got published was in um, one of the old socialist magazines, and it was a film review. You know, for many of us, that's how we begin as writers, is as reviewers. I fell in love as a teenager. Thank God for the public library. So, Because I was obsessed from cinema from really early on, I would go straight to the cinema section when I went into the library and I came across the writing of Pauline Cale, the film reviewer. The snap of her writing, her muscularity as, as a writer was truly an inspiration. She was one of the early writers that made me want to write. I'd read writers that I loved, but she was a writer that made me want to write. I don't actually agree with... We don't have the same opinion about films, but that's not the point. It's about what she does with writing that was really important. Writing is a very
2: solitary, introspective task. Do you sometimes fear that by working in a space like this, as opposed to in a library where there are other people around, that you're missing out on
1: interaction with the world? I am a social being, so, you know... There's a couple of the coffee shops here that I love, and, you know, I've been here for seven, eight years in this in this space, so th- you, you form relationships. I often, particularly with theatre stuff, I often work in collaboration with people. So, you know, you're right, particularly the, the novel and the short story, they're, they're solitary work, and I, and I think for me, they need to be solitary, you know, particularly with a novel, you, you, you just want, those concentrated hours where you're developing your character, you're developing your story, you're in the voice that you want to write in. But the theatre work I do, particularly with uh, Patricia Cornelius, Andrew Bovell, Melissa Reeves, Orini Vella, that's just been a great joy, and it takes me out of myself and it challenges me because every single one of those people has strong opinion, <laughs> you know. So, and that that's great. You need that. You need to be um, you need to be challenged. We are all social creatures and that's you know the the nature of community is something that I think about a lot. I think all of us are connected to communities and sometimes those communities are those political or social communities we make in our travels in life. But family is really important to me it's not nice getting old but one of the nice things about getting old is that when young people do ask kind of advice and I do say don't buy into the myth of the isolated writer, the genius in the garret. You know, you do actually need the support of your friends. You need the support of your family. And I think there's no way that I would say that my work is more important than any of those things. And in fact, in the best possible way, it's actually not the priority. (laughs) Um, And I think that's a healthy way of being. Speaking of family, let's
2: talk about the origins of Damascus. When you came out, your mum gained comfort from reading St. Paul in the Bible, which is ironic on one level because the queer community tends to hold up St. Paul as one of those, this is why religion hates us, this is why Christianity hates us, because of that line of St. Paul's about homosexuality. So there's a a fascinating conundrum uh, that has inspired Damascus. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: When I was 13, I was making that bargain with God, make me straight and I will I will be the good <laughs> the good Christian. I could not read Paul because all I could read was that line in Corinthians, you know, you are you are damned, you will never enter the kingdom of love because you're homosexual. I mean there's a whole lot list of people who won't enter. But that's only one part of a whole range of writings of Paul's. And so that conversation with my mother, this is a woman who did not have access to the education we have. So she did um, five years of primary school in the village. High school education was a dream for most Greeks, let alone a, uh, a rural young girl. So her reading is not mediated through theory or <laughs> she's just reading the words. And so when we were talking about her difficulty, of loving her son, worried that her son would be... Uh, she was never worried about me going to hell. Mum's got an unbelievably profound faith, but she doesn't believe in heaven and hell. Like, she, she's not interested in that aspect of... Christianity at all. So she was in a space where she thought, I don't know who I can talk to about these things because they're shameful and I don't even have the language for it. And she said to me, it was actually reading Paul. She said it made her realise that I have to defend my son because I love my son. And it also made me realise that God loves my son. And maybe... That's one of the seeds for this novel is to say, why have we concentrated as a culture, as churches, on this one aspect of, of Paul, which is one line, right, that comes out of a particular stress at a point in his life when he's trying to, um, this new community that's forming that doesn't even have the word Christian at that time, he's trying to corral it into his interpretation of, of what God is, most of Paul's writings are about how is it that we live an ethical life. And that's what Damascus became for me, to go, all right, there's all these various interpretations of Paul. That's the, the Paul of history. There's the Paul of the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Orthodox Church. The, there's the the Paul that my mother read and there's Paul that I read. There's the Paul that Israel Folau's read. Who is this guy? <laughs> so what does he mean to me? Because every book is your own struggle to make sense of the world. But I did frame the writing of this book as a series of questions, all being, who is Paul?
2: Some people I'm sure are surprised that you've written this book. It is set in the early days of Christianity, but there is a sense of Damascus being part of a continuation of themes that have been explored in your work to date. Questions of morality for example, and questions of identity. In Loaded, Ari is challenging the morality of his family and trying to find his own. Slap is looking at the aftermath of a moral transgression, effectively. Do you feel that Damascus is a continuation of an exploration of moral codes in your writing, only this time the
1: stakes are higher? For me, what felt different with Damascus was more the Sense that because I'm writing a novel set two thousand years in the past, there's a different approach that I had to take in terms of finding my way into the book. But it feels to me, Richard, absolutely connected to what I've been struggling with all my life. And it's not very uh, complex. <laughs> what is it to lead an ethical life? You know, that was there in Barracuda. That's the the, the novel that precedes this, and. Damascus, probably because of the length of time it's taken me and also because of that theme of faith, feels really connected to a third novel I wrote called Dead Europe. And Dead Europe is also a novel about faith and doubt. So, Dead Europe is set in two time frames. One is contemporary Europe a few years after the fall of communism and the Greek Civil War. It is about this young man at that time, Christos Cholkis dealing with the breaking of a faith with something called communism, something called Marxism. So Damascus feels really close to that novel, both, as I said, in terms of the process of it, but also in terms of the theme of faith. And Damascus, for me, is actually just going even deeper to the first source of ethics that I received. That was Christianity. And I guess I'm asking a certain patience, is it, or... Generosity from readers to say, I don't really care if you're an atheist or not. I don't what your faith tradition is, but rather to, to be open to wondering what it is in these ethics of this world religion that may still speak to us now. That was Christos Chalkas talking about his new book, Damascus, a look
0: at the life of St Paul. Arts Hub's Richard Watts was lucky enough to speak with Christos in his studio. Damascus is out now from Allen and Unwin.
3: If you're looking to create your own podcast, film or TV show, then you should start with the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Plugged into the sector and offering real experience, Afters offers a range of industry certificates taught by screen and broadcast experts with their fingers on the pulse of the industry. And because the courses are so hands-on and practical, you can apply what you learn straight away and use your industry certificate to get your next job. Find the perfect afters course for you at afters.edu.au.
0: Next up, the nudge. This is our gentle push for your creative practice. How can you make things a little better or strengthen the way you work? We could all use some help to make better use of time or make ourselves more resilient to criticism. But what kicks off a new creative project for you? Is it that aha moment? Or do ideas come to you from mysterious muses that whisper them to you in your dreams?
4: Sometimes I don't realise I have ideas and I just keep saying things out loud and someone who's with me will say, yes, that's a great idea, do that. And it's like, oh, okay, that one, yes, okay, I'll do that. And then something might grow from there.
0: Shaggs is a visual artist who works across printmaking, performance, projection and audio. She's got a problem, though, with an upcoming exhibition and she's looking at ways of kickstarting her creativity.
4: A South Australian curator has asked me to be in a show next year and I just, I've got a blank. So I know I need to sit down and do a bit of a just write out, whatever comes into my head, put it on cards, do a bit of a visual sort and trust that something will come from that.
0: This kind of brainstorming is a common way of breaking a block. Knowing that half your ideas might be terrible, but just keeping the ideas flowing. It's an incremental way of coming up with ideas, piece by piece, rather than that huge insight. Research psychologist at the University of Melbourne, Dr Maggie Webb, sees this as a different kind of thinking to an idea.
5: I would generally contrast problem-solving with an aha moment to incremental problem-solving, that step-by-step gradual solving process.
0: Maggie's research looks at those aha moments when creativity gets struck by that lightning bolt of a new idea, those moments that allow you to look at something from an entirely new angle. Maggie has been conducting the aha challenge in collaboration with the ABC, looking at how the brain solves problems and how to create those perfect conditions for new ideas.
5: There are a number of things that allow good ideas to happen. If you get yourself into a state of positive affect, so by that I mean you're feeling happy or content, it tends to mean that you have diffused attention. So it means that you're paying less focused attention to everything around you, and it means anything that is around you can start to impact and start giving you creative ideas.
0: There are lots of good examples of this diffused thinking, including meditation. For Shags, ideas come from a conscious decluttering of her mind at home.
4: There's lots of time sitting in the backyard with a cup of tea and the cats looking at the veggies, um, watching the birds, just making space to just be quiet and not having to fill your day with everything all of the time.
0: Another solution is to take your problem on the road.
5: So when you're feeling stuck go for a walk and as you're walking you kind of let yourself unwind you're not on your phone you're just kind of listening and looking and hopefully getting into a bit of a happier state anyway.
0: Walking, particularly in nature is a way to find that diffuse attention state that lets ideas sneak up on you.
5: Letting your environment spark different things and letting yourself go through memories and stuff like that and your memories will spark different things as well.
0: Memory is a great spark for ideas along with dreams. Maggie suggests waking early in the morning when you're closest to those dreams.
5: People report a lot of aha moments in these times. So maybe keep a notepad beside your bed.
0: (laughs) For some of us, it's not coming up with ideas that's the problem.
6: I don't think that ideas are some sort of sacred, sacred thing. It's just, you know, sometimes systemically I have the capacity to come up with them and sometimes I'm too busy answering emails. Like many artists, Chris doesn't get
0: enough time to actually create based on his many ideas. He juggles being a musician, performer and dog owner. Chris has more collaborations and opportunities than he has time for, so an important step for him was quitting his job to dedicate himself to his music and performance.
6: I used to work in an office and I find that um, when you become full of work for other people or in big systems that don't necessarily align with what you need to be doing or you want to be doing, then you don't have time or space or capacity to, to critically learn things in your free time. Like, you, you know, you, sort of, you spend your free time in recovery. For many of us,
0: that free time is often interrupted by so many competing needs. And distraction is that big killer of ideas.
5: Every time you have that interruption, you have to start a thought process again. Even if you are halfway through a thought process, like that inertia
4: is gone.
0: Everyone knows to switch off their phone, but how many of us actually practice it?
4: I think the greatest enemy of ideas and motivation is the external noise without the external noise coming in there's greater space for the ideas to be created within
0: Chris also finds his best ideas when he's not concentrating on trying to get those ideas but when he's in a diffuse
6: state looking and doing something else I used to find that I do the best writing when I'm when I'm cooking there's something about just you know doing some small processes or whatever you know you can't you can't shortcut cutting an onion or, or whatever it is or you know waiting for something to fry and, and using your hands and doing those things something's going to come out of it so finding ideas can be about finding what works best for you rather than
0: fitting some prescribed mold it's about embracing who we are and our own strengths
4: i guess i'm fortunate to be exquisitely dyslexic and i know th- people think that's a learning disability and really it's neurodiversity. So how that manifests for me is that I'm able to see connections between two things that seemingly don't have a connection.
0: It's not uncommon for neurodiversity to be linked to the creation of art. Maggie's research has found links between schizophrenia and that aha moment. So I decided to walk the talk, literally. I'm taking Maggie's suggestion to go for a walk every morning when I'm closest to dreams. I'm thinking of Chris and Shags as I leave the phone behind, trying to enter that relaxed state where blood is flowing and my brain isn't always looking for solutions. OK, so far there are no great ideas for a novel or another project. Mostly I'm just scribbling out to-do lists. But they are really inspired to-do lists. So maybe Maggie's had some effect on me after all.
3: For over 60 years, the National Institute of Dramatic Art has offered education and training that evolves with the performing arts industry. NIDA also offers short courses, holiday classes and studios for anyone who wants to develop their creativity. Shape your unique creative journey at nida.edu.au.
0: Here's what's next in Australian arts. From January 8 to 26, it's the Sydney Festival which has some of the best performing arts, and we're looking forward to the Perth Festival kicking off in February. On January 19, it's Melbourne's Midsummer Festival, with the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras kicking off next month on Valentine's Day. And on February 29th, there's a very special use of the leap year. The Adelaide Biennale of Australian Arts celebrates its 30th year. Thanks for letting us into your ears for the first Arts Hubbub podcast. And we'll be back next month with what's happening in the arts. Thanks to our guests, Chris Soschalkas, Dr. Maggie Webb, Shags and Chris Hendry with his dog Chimpy for additional barks. The Arts Hubbub is produced by Michelle Macklem, Richard Watts, Sabine Briggs and me, George Dunford. Our theme music is Chasing Waterfalls by Tim Scheel.
3: If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And for all the latest in news and jobs in the arts, visit us online at artshub.com.au. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Kulin elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded.